If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to the book of Exodus, and we'll be in the first chapter. And Colin said I had about two hours, so that he would be providing lunch. Uh, Why don't you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, and because the mind can't endure what the tush can't absorb. So here we go. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom, Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter... She shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. These ladies are saucy. I like them. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is God's word, and every bit of it is true. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, we come before you this morning in awe, but not odd enough. We come hungry, but not hungry enough. Thirsty, but not thirsty enough. But we thank you, Lord, that you are the God who gives thirst and quenches, who grants hunger and satisfies, who brings to need and then rescues. And we praise you for all that you are, all that you are about, 
and most especially for the person and wonder of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So we're in the book of Exodus this morning. I looked back through sermon audio, and thank you, James, for maintaining that site, uh, just to see where Steve had preached before, and I noticed that I had preached several service uh, sermons out of Exodus, and uh, currently in my church in Birmingham, we're going through Exodus. I guess it's a favorite. I should let you know, however, that it is uh, better to view Exodus as chapter 2 of a five-chapter volume than a standalone book. And uh, if you go back and read through Exodus, and you should, I encourage you to start in Genesis. But uh, Exodus is great. Exodus is about God, and it's about God being on mission, a mission to make himself known to his people and a mission to make himself known to the world. The book opens with everybody being in ignorance about God. Uh, The people don't seem to know God. Moses at the fiery bush has to ask God his name. And Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Nobody in the opening of this book knows God. The Exodus event is not the ultimate purpose of God. The ultimate purpose in the Exodus is to make his self known to his people and to this world in a way never before known before. And so our hope, our goal, our aim ought to be to know him. To know him deeply, broadly, intimately, wondrously, majestically, to make him the center of our focus and our being. So regardless of where you may be in your understanding or reading of the book of Exodus, let me just encourage you that the question should be this. What is this chapter teaching me about my God? What is it demonstrating to me about the person of God? He's making himself known. He is revealing himself. He's lifting the veil, if you will, over the eyes and hearts of the people of God and of the world. And so I'm supposed to see and come to believe something about him at a very deep and fundamental level. A couple weeks ago, uh, Melissa and I I learned that we were to be grandparents to a little boy. Uh, Lord willing, uh, Brooks Beckham Williamson uh, will come into this world in the middle of February. We've already toyed around with uh, how to abbreviate that name, BB. Uh, I think I'm going to buy for him the complete collection of BB King. Um, <laughs> And so I think that for me, the book of Exodus this season has taken on an even uh, sweeter hue. Moses, if you will, wrote these books for his spiritual grandchildren. Those who would be going into the promised land. It's a history, but it's a theological history of things that he desperately wanted them to know about their God, and about them. And so as I've been working through Exodus in my church, I've also been keeping a notebook that I've titled Lessons for Brooks. What do I want Brooks to understand about this world, about himself, and about his God? 
What do I desire that he know that would equip him for spiritual warfare and also enrich him for his spiritual welfare? Consider the following setting with me for a minute that we find in the opening of the book of Exodus. There's a powerful and godless government that's pursuing a culture of death toward the innocent. The people of God who were once celebrated and honored are now the objects of suspicion and scorn and made to serve the state as an enslaved people. A culture and a people that at one point celebrated them are now living in dread of them and acting in hostility toward them. A culture once hospitable has now turned hostile. How how did this happen? (laughs) You ask yourself. And so you're a young couple and you ask yourself, Can we bring a child into this world? And at the same time, you ask yourself, how can we not bring a child into this world? What will happen to us if we don't reproduce and what will happen to us if we do? Our people will perish if we don't reproduce, but they seem to be perishing as we reproduce, what do we do? Can you imagine the tension of every pregnancy in that season for the people of Israel? Both celebrated and mourned. Excitement mixed with anxiety, and then the delivery only to find that it's a boy. Sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Folks, this is not the people of God's first rodeo. Neither is it our God's. As you look at life today, It's not new. It's new to us. It's not new. So three things that I'd like to stress from this chapter this morning and that I'd like you to know and that I would like for Brooks to know and for all of us. Number one, from chapter one, we have a God who is often hidden but he is never, ever absent. We have a God who is often hidden, but he's never, ever absent. Look back through chapter 1, and you'll notice an astonishing absence of God's presence explicitly in that chapter. The way the story is being told, it's as if God isn't even on the scene. When you get to chapter 3, he explodes into the narrative, and he's everywhere after that. But in these first two chapters, he barely makes an appearance. He's hardly mentioned at all, and yet at the same time, his presence is everywhere. 
It had been 400 years since God had said or done anything of remarkable note. All they had experienced was years and years and years and years of silence, years and years and years of life going on and on and on as it had forever until the new Pharaoh arrived who didn't know anything about Joseph, the guy who had saved the empire that he had now inherited and who now looked upon the people of Israel with suspicion and scorn and feared them. When we're faced with the silence or the hiddenness of God, you know, we often look for answers. Job concluded that God must not surely understand what's going on on life, in life. And so God riddled him with two chapters of about 180 questions of how much do I know, Job, that you don't. Some people conclude that there is no God and we're just living in a blind universe of fate and chance and mechanical processes. Harold Kushner, the famous Jewish rabbi who wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People, concluded that it's not that God doesn't know, it's just simply that he doesn't have the power to stop, that he values our freedom so highly that he just doesn't involve himself in that way. One time when the disciples of Jesus were on a boat and it was about to be swamped and Jesus was power napping over on a cushion, they yelled at him, don't you care if we perish? How about you? You do have something that you tell yourself about the person and the presence of God in your life and in the life of this world especially when he really seems to be quite absent, frankly. You may not go full on into there is no God. You may not stumble like Kushner and decide that he doesn't have power. You may be like the disciples and just wonder, does he actually give a darn about what's going on in my life? What do you tell yourself? One of the wonders of this chapter is that Moses is showing us Even when God is absent, his presence is constant. As I said, Exodus is chapter 2. So the people reading through this narrative would know that it was the Lord who had brought Israel into Egypt to begin with. As they kept reading through Exodus, they would find out in chapter 9 that it was the Lord who had raised Pharaoh up, not Pharaoh who had raised Pharaoh up. And that it was this God, their God, that had said to Abraham hundreds of years before that I'm going to enslave my own people for 400 years. And then I'm going to deliver them with a mighty hand. And just the strangeness of God's providence. Folks, you better get used to the word mystery if you're going to do business with God. And while we tend to make God's sovereignty and we tend to make discussions about God's providence an occasion for theological debate and disputation, over and over and over and over again in the scriptures, it's presented to us not as something for which we should all get twisted around and debate, but as a comfort. As a reminder of this very important principle, you, beloved in Christ, are never, ever, 
ever, ever caught in the circumstances of life. You are always, always, always held in the hand of Jesus Christ who holds all circumstances together. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are never merely in the grip of life circumstances. We are always in the grip of Almighty God. So consider with me God's presence as it sort of unfolded for us in this chapter. He brought them to Egypt. He raised Moses up. He is the one working behind the scenes in providential working and care to bring about His glory and the good of His people. I know it's hard to understand. I know it's hard to wrestle with, particularly when you're under the thumb or in the dark. But Jesus told us, don't be anxious about anything. Why? Because our Father is in charge of this world and not a sparrow drops from the tree or a hair out of your head apart from his will. Some of Jesus' last words as he left this earth to go into glory were, and behold, I will be with you always. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 8, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Why is there all of this encouragement to us in Scripture Because the scriptures know there are going to be many, many, many times in your experience and in your living life on this earth where God's active presence in your life is not going to be there. Where you're not going to have a sense that the God of the universe is present and real in the situations of your life. Where you're going to be wondering, where is he What's he doing and why am I not seeing any of it? And we need to be reminded that I'm never merely gripped in the circumstances of life, but I'm gripped in the hand of Almighty God. And we see it in this chapter. Number two, as a consequence of that reality, not only is his presence always active, even when we don't see it, We do need to appreciate and appropriate this truth as well. That means that we must never, ever, ever, ever think that God is not working. No matter how much it seems like he's absent. Thirty-three years, folks. In the history of this church. Many seasons. <laughs> God, are you at work? Because it sure doesn't seem like it. He is always, always, always at work. But that doesn't mean that we're always, always, always going to see it immediately. In fact, it may take many, 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 many years and possibly eternity before we see the fullness of what our God was up to in our life and in the life of this church. We have a God who is the God of all yesterdays, all todays, and all tomorrows. That means yours, that means mine, that means this church's, that means this nation, and that means this world.
we need to believe that. Because number two, what you believe about those things has an, a powerfully, let me say that again. What you believe about those things shapes powerfully how you live today. And what you believe about tomorrow and whose hand tomorrow is held has a powerful shaping influence on how you live today. Let's expand that a little bit this way. Who in this chapter isn't living by fear? The people of Israel, they have a lot to fear, and they are totally powerless to do anything about it. But look who has all the power. Pharaoh. And what's he living in? He's afraid of the people of God. Right? And then you look down in verse 9, I believe it is, and what's it say? And the people of Egypt were in dread of the people of Israel. Everybody in this chapter is living by fear. The people with power and the people without power. So if you're sitting here thinking that if only we, Christian America, if we could only regain our national prominence, our national place, our national power, then we could be free and without fear, you're not paying attention. Because everybody in this chapter, is afraid, except for two. Two ladies. Their names respectively mean beautiful, shiny, and sparkle. Shifra and Pua. Shining and sparkly. <laughs> Basically what their names mean, Right? And in the midst of this dark world, of everybody living by fear, is shiny and sparkly. Who are ordered by Pharaoh to kill all the baby boys. And they do not. They don't comply. They don't capitulate. They don't cower. But you know what else they do? They also don't stage rallies. They don't pitch a fit. What do they do? They do their part. And Pharaoh calls them and says, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Why does he ask them that? Because he's terrified that the people of Israel are going to be stronger than the people of Egypt. And what do these sassy ladies tell him? Pharaoh, they already are. They're not like Egyptian women. They get on the birthing stool and it's on, you know, and we can't do anything. They're already stronger than you. But how is it that they neither capitulated or caved, but also didn't cower before Pharaoh? They're risking their lives to save Hebrew boys. Well, it's the only mention of God in this chapter. Shifra and Pua feared God. So in a way, right, everybody in this chapter is living by fear. 
But there's only one kind of fear that actually frees you to sparkle and shine. They feared God. Why weren't they overawed by the power and the prominence of Pharaoh? Because they had already been overawed by God. Why why were they able to resist an unjust command? Even at the risk of their own lives. Because, and we're not told how. They had the fear of God. This isn't a a cowering, oh, I'm afraid God's going to smite me kind of fear. This is a, we stand in awe of him, therefore, we're not going to stand in awe of you. And we're going to do what God has called us to do. And what he's called us to do is not to take innocent life. They are the only free people in this chapter. Pharaoh's not free of his fear. The people of Egypt aren't free of their their fear. The people of Israel are slaves. He says it three times. But here are these two women who in fear of God are free. Now, we could stop right here and I could say, so get on out there and sparkle and shine for Jesus. In a dark world. Resist the impulse to compromise, to cower, to capitulate to an unjust, dark, blood-seeking society. And none of us could do that. And if we did it simply because it was be like Pua and be like, you know, great, it sells a lot of books. But it doesn't really help us. Because the secret of their freedom and the secret of their power wasn't in them. It was in the one whom they served. Now, why did Moses include their story? Well, one, because he's trying to teach the people to say this, this is how it's always been. You, you need to have a greater fear of me, a greater awe of me. You need to recognize that I'm the God of continuous presence in your life and I am the God of ceaseless care. And the evidence of that is, you you remember these two ladies? That's why some of y'all are alive, right? These two women stood between you and death. Boy, that ought to remind you of somebody. In the adult Sunday school hour, Justin asked a good question, which was, what do you do when all of life seems to be dark and God doesn't seem to be doing anything? And I said, well, when the subjective feels are absent, you have to cling on to the objective reels. You see, this book isn't just about the people of Israel. It isn't just about Yahweh's activity in the Older Testament. This this book, as much as any book in the Bible, is here to teach us about Jesus. 
And what do we look to? We, we don't look to necessarily to women who at the risk of their lives stood between us and death, who at the risk of their lives uh, refused to bow the knee to an unjust power, at the risk of their lives rescued us. We look at Jesus who at the cost of his life stood between us and death, who at the cost of his life uh, came to deliver us from an even more pernicious and deep slavery, a slavery to sin and self-servingness and death and hell, who at the cost of his life stood before the authorities of this world and said, my life for theirs. The truer, greater, if you will, Pua and Shifra, Jesus Christ, who is our reason for being. And we look at his deliverance, at his life, at, at his intermediacy for us. And we go, if I have that kind of God, who didn't stay safe in heaven, who came down and inhabited this dark world, who himself was subjected to all of the evils, all of the pitfalls, who himself, at his birth, was on the run for his life, just like these baby boys in Exodus chapter 1. If he came and experienced all that and then went to the cross, not for his own sins, but for mine. Raised from the dead. And it is that hand, full of nail scars, that has me in its grip and this world in its grip. Though I may not understand what he's up to, (laughs) I do know who's up to it. And that is him. Yes, we should all sparkle and shine like Shifra and Pua. Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are not immune from the call of God on the life of his people to be on mission for him. Whatever that might look like to Discover God's love and share it with others, right? Whether that means I'm the midwife, right? Or I'm the one who is in some other way serving. But that light that is supposed to shine from us will never be a light that shines because of who we are. It will be a light that shines because of who we reflect. I've done two funerals in the last month. And attended a third. It's hard. But one of them was on that verse in Matthew. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Like Pua and Shifra. They weren't sparkly and shiny because of who they were. They were sparkly and shiny because of whose they were. Right? And you know, the moon is permanently dark on one side and has no light of its own. It, it only shines to the degree that it's facing the sun. 
if you and I want to shine into this dark world, then we have to be properly aligned towards the one who's shining towards us. But you'll never, ever, ever rest assured that his face is shining towards you until you see that it was Jesus Christ who came and made that possible for you. And as you have read and learned in Gentle and Lowly, he was happy to do it. He was happy to do it. Beloved, this is a marvelous church that has evidenced the utter faithfulness of God for over a third of a century. That is remarkable. It's a remarkable testimony to the faithfulness of God who has shown through her, <laughs> often through the midst of really, really dark times. I'm so thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ for his work in and through her. And it will go on because he has seen to it. You are beloved by Almighty God who holds you in the grip of his hand, who is constant in his work and ceaseless in his care. And we know this because we know the one who stood between us and death. And that was Jesus Christ. And we cling to that old rugged cross. Till we exchange it one day for a crown.